Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So thanks, Sam and Michelle, for the invitation. Um, okay, we're up. So uh, I'd like to talk about side projects. And I chose this theme because I think ultimately this is what we're most passionate about. And if there's one thing that you want to take away from this presentation, I'd like you to take away from this presentation, it's what do you want to become and what are the side projects that will get you there? And that's it. So you can relax now because you've figured out what you want to get from this presentation. So I'm going to talk about four different side projects um, that I've been working on. And the first one is a side project that enables flow the idea of creative flow. So <clears throat> I've worked in a creative capacity in large corporations with large infrastructure um, for about 15 years. And I was starting to feel burned out. And I decided to take a sabbatical. And I took a year off. And I traveled for a year, um, which is kind of ironic, because I travel for my work anyway quite a lot. But um, I did a different kind of travel. And I came to the conclusion that I was curious, I was curious about what I could achieve um, with, uh, in terms of creative output with the minimum infrastructure as possible. Um, so I wanted to create something that would enable me to take on interesting projects, however you define interesting, but with as little infrastructure as possible, because I wanted a chance to figure out what I I wanted to figure out what I enjoyed again. Um, and I started a studio called Studio D Radio Durans. It's named after an extremophilic bacteria. Um, nobody comes to our website because they stumble across it. You come across it because it's typically word of mouth. Um, I chose an extremophilic bacteria because if a nuclear bomb was to drop here right now, pretty much that's the only thing that would be surviving living thing that would survive afterwards. And that was the intent, is to um, create a studio in a space. Um, I have zero employees. I have no office. The work is inherently in international. Um, I've taken on projects in 18 different countries around the world. Projects last for three weeks to a number of months. Um, I'll talk a bit more about those projects in a moment. And um, I guess in the last three years, we've hired over 100 people onto projects. Give you a sense of scale. And you know, every studio likes to talk about specializing in something. And I think maybe the sweet spot of what we do is we can go pretty much anywhere in the world. And um, we will be able to engage in a meaningful way uh, any demographic whether it's subcultures of Tokyo teenagers, or Afghan armed dealers, or Milanese housewives, you name it. If, you're interested, if, a, if a client is interested in a particular demographic, we will be able to get a team on the ground, anywhere in the world, and figure out what's going on. And that's what we specialize in. So what does a typical project look like? So the 22nd version is you have a bunch of starting assumptions. You uh, pull together a team. You travel somewhere. You learn a bunch of stuff. And then you apply that stuff to something that is important to the client. 
right? I mean, that's basically it. I could tart it up with a bunch of buzzwords and things that make the consultancy sound wonderful, but essentially it, it boils down to that, right? And maybe that's what a lot of you do when you're trying to figure stuff out too. So let's be honest about it. But let's back up a little bit and let's, let's kind of break each of those down. So, you know, what are those starting assumptions? And often clients come to us with little more than a paragraph of text. And, you know, one of my detectors for the kind of clients that I want to work with is literally how they kind of think about the problem that they're trying to solve. And if it takes three pages of text and a long document, that's not really for us, right? I mean, that's already getting sucked into bureaucracy. So really, I want projects that can be described in a paragraph or less and a handshake. And of course, there's contracts and all of that stuff that comes on the back end of that. But um, basically, uh, what are those starting assumptions? And a lot of our clients understand what is going on through things like the sales that they have or their understanding of the market size. And they understand how people are doing things. They have quite a lot of data in that. And what we provide as a studio is an understanding of why. So we can help uh, our clients understand why people behave in the way that they do. And then based on that why, often we go in very different directions in terms of design and other things. So pulling together a crew, the work is inherently international. So one, one week we might be in Saudi Arabia, the next week we might be in New York. Um, the crew that we, the people that we hire generally are designers, strategists, technologists, um, every project has a local team, so we always hire a local team, and you're only as good as your local team. Um, and it's fairly common to fly in two or three people and then build out a local team of between two and five people per location. So uh, in total, a project's team size might end up being 15 people um, over the course of the project. But there's a core, typically, of between two to five people. There. And in pulling together that team, because there's a team of professionals, but there's a lot of people on the edges of that team, um, and we work with very, very diverse skill sets, um, work with a lot of students. Um, inherently, I would say they are not pretentious. Pretentious people are inherently less curious about the world, and I want people that are curious about the world. Um, Every project, because their clients come to us, they know that we specialize in international work, so starts with a question of um, where can we learn the most, right? And sometimes you learn the most by not traveling anywhere, and sometimes that was what we recommend to the client. Or sometimes you can learn the most by going online and running remote research. We don't assume that our methodology is the best methodology for, for what the client's trying to do. But when they take us on, we get to ask, where would we learn the most? And that's both within a country or within regions. Um, many of our projects include working in multiple locations in one country or across multiple countries and then comparing what we find between those countries and cultures. Um, a lot of people think that what we do is ethnography and that's part of it and that we're there to decode culture and that's certainly part of it. But I'd argue that what we really are there is, is the understanding of culture and the understanding of context, the context in which people use things and do things, is vitally important that we are able to understand that and decode it. Um, but we also need domain expertise. 
And without that, we're missing um, a significant understanding. So domain ex domains that we've worked in are things like automotive and healthcare, uh, hospitality, and we do a lot in the mobile space. And then the third part of it, I think, is really mapping it to what the client is trying to understand and what their organization is capable of or what they would like their organization to grow into. And any one of these is fairly common to find. And what I like to do when I'm pulling together a team is to have as few people as possible to be able to address these three issues. Working with less people is generally fun. Less, more focused people, large teams, get in the way of themselves sometimes. And as I said, when I, when I started out the studio, I wanted to um, have the minimum infrastructure to take on interesting work. And so that means really paring back. So um, every project has an evolution of understanding, right? You start with a bunch of uh, assumptions. Um, you know, the fancy way of saying that is with a hypothesis of sorts. And then we collect data. And we turn that data into, we, we give it some kind of structure and turn it in for information. And then through talking about it and synthesizing it and processing it over time and creating spaces that are conducive to that process, it gets turned into knowledge. And once we start applying it to what the client is, has asked it to, us to do, it becomes insight of sorts, right? And you can go to any consultancy, innovation consultancy in the world, and they'll sell you this, and they'll tart it up as something else. But largely, this process is consistent across pretty much any consultancy that's trying to figure stuff out. I mean, it's just basically, it's the evolution of understanding. And in our studio, we apply it to design, brand, strategy, uh, community engagement, policy. Some clients like to have it, for it to be part of their communication strategy, sometimes all of the above in a single project. And long after the project is done, if we've, if we've done a good job, it becomes wisdom. It becomes the thing that people say, oh yeah, that's that thing, right? It's, so. And it may sound counterintuitive, but when the client has totally bought into what we have rigorously researched and then presented to them, um, it becomes the new common sense. And it becomes that thing that people just assume and they don't question. And they build it into their workflow and they build it into their view of the world. And that allows us to then move on to the next thing, right? Because that means our, in, in many respects our job is done. Um, I, I should say that um, it implies total buy-in but common sense changes over time, and so later on you'll have other projects that will undermine that common sense and introduce a new common sense as well. So, um, Because we work internationally, we have an opportunity to create our own working spaces. And so we get to ask the question on every single project, if you could create any space that is conducive to this thing that you're trying to figure out, what do you want to create? And um, we have a methodology, and we call it pop-up studios. And it can be a hotel, it can be a guest house. More often than not, it's a home. Some of the places we work out of are very, very quirky uh, in interesting ways. And um, if you think of 
if you work within a large organization, often you do things like off-sites, right? And if you think about why you do an off-site, well, everything that we do is an off-site. And actually, when we're in field, we sometimes have off-sites to the off-site um, in what we're doing as well. So a very simple principle is that we want to be based in the communities that we're interested in researching. So whether it's in uh, downtown Cairo, or if we're doing a project on pest control in um, China, we might uh, set up in a, a small apartment in Chongqing um, for a project on high net worth banking practices. Um, in Singapore, the team might be working out of a penthouse. Um, if we're working, and we do quite a lot of work with some of the world's poor, um, I'd want the team to be based out of a slum. And, um, and the, the art form of this is to try and find those places, those spaces that are conducive for bringing the team together. And there's some basic things that you need to get out of the way, like being safe and having a flushing toilet. You'd be surprised you don't always get a flushing toilet. Um, and having water and having a degree of privacy. Um, uh, but there's a lot of things that the, you would imagine a team wouldn't compromise on, but if you give them the opportunity to create that space themselves, they really do compromise on it because they understand the value of being in just the right place, the, just the right block in the community. Every project that we do um, has different kinds of pop-up studios, and some of them are studios where we're, it's about gathering data, and those tend to be very intensive and very pressure cooker environments, and that can be a very healthy thing for a period of time. And later on in the project, um, so for example in Myanmar, for a project we did, um, we like to put it, the team into a more reflective space. And so this is an example of a pop-up studio in Shan State, up in the highlands of Myanmar, uh, that the team worked out of for three weeks. And um, so often, the way that innovation processes or uh, consulting processes are designed is that there's a lot of structure in there. And absolutely, I think you need to know what's, what structure needs to, in, to be in place to get from A to B, this kind of destination that you want to get to. And there's a lot of science that goes into that, right, in terms of how humans interact with one another, how teams work, the kind of spaces that are conducive for certain activities. Um, how we process information and over what speed and so on, right? What are the things that um, allow us to absorb and understand what is going on? Um, and that's the science of what we do. Um, but I'd say the art of what we do is knowing when to step away from that. And I'd say the, art, the real art, when we really pull it off, is that we're able to almost completely step away from our process because the team has got, in a very short space of time, the team, often with new members, have got to the point where they know what the destination is and they know what their role is in getting there and it doesn't need to be articulated. And because we've created this live workspace where we're surrounded by each other and you pick up the norms of each other very quickly and because it's the international and local team often living under one roof, often, if you do it right, the art form is to create a space where these things happen naturally. And when they do happen naturally, um, then it doesn't feel like work. It feels like play. And when it feels like pay, people have fun, and often they achieve creative flow. And that's what we're trying to achieve with a lot of this.
Um, we can create these immersive experiences, and I don't want to oversell it because it doesn't always work, but when it works, these become transformational experiences for the people that are on these projects because they're interacting with their colleagues and new people that they've met in an environment that is conducive to that moment. It's a moment in their life, and we want to create a moment in their life that they will not forget, right, in, in doing this. Um, and because it involves a lot of travel, and sometimes the team might be away from home for a number of months, they might be in very strange working environments, um, we're looking to create these anchors to their rhythm of the day. And I don't mean the morning stand-up or the meeting that lasts two hours and you run through a checklist and, and so on. I mean the little things like the sound of a monk's gong that brings the team together or the smell of breakfast wafting from the kitchen because your colleague has cooked for you or someone who, say, who shouts out uh, who has laundry to wash. And by the way, if you want to break down barriers within a team, wash your, wash your uh, colleagues' dirty laundry. I'll tell you that really quickly breaks down barriers. So, so the, these live-work environments really push the team to come together in different ways that they're not used to. And it forces different relationships. And I think particularly on multicultural teams, which is we work pretty much exclusively with multicultural teams, or if you think of it being in an international environment where you have teams coming from different sites, it forces them to interact in a different way and it exposes them to things about their, um, their colleagues and their friends' cultures that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. And 99% of it is very positive. There's a few other th things that are trickier to deal with um, as well. Um, but it's through going through those, those hardships together that actually um, it bonds the team as well. So, as you might imagine, um, one of the, um, if you think about putting a team on the ground anywhere in the world, is for that team to be able to function pretty much anywhere in the world, right? And a big part of what I expect out of my team is to be able to read any street, right? To be able to look at what's happening and understanding the dynamics and the power play and the authority and the written and the unwritten rules and understand what's going on, right? So, for example, running street research in Afghanistan. Um, and then there's another part to this, which is letting the street read you. And really, a lot of the way that the street or what people around you in social situations react to is um, their sizing up of you. Are you a threat? Um, what is my opportunity from speaking with you? Financial. You know, are you a business opportunity? and so on and so forth. And this, this plays out a million ways every time we step out onto the street, right? And it'll happen here in this conference as well. And a very simple thing is the nod. And every culture has an equivalent of the nod. The nod is actually slightly different in different cultures. And the nod is simply entering into a social situation as a stranger and merely uh, doing the minimum amount of acknowledgement to recognize that you're in somebody's social space. And so the nod is literally this. Yeah, that's it, right? And you typically, it, it, you get a nod in return, right? It's the unspoken thing. The Japanese equivalent is, 
a very mini bow with the head. Every culture has its equivalent of a nod. So I just want you to just get you into the, the, the mood of this. Can you all give me a nod like? So, come on, on three. One, two, three. Okay, all right, subtle, it's right, right? Go, let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> you feeling it? It's actually quite hard to pull off, and it's so, so culturally nuanced. Right? It's, um, if you get it wrong, it's a bit like shouting, I'm an idiot, right, <laughs> socially. But when you get it right, it means that you have restored harmony in a situation that could otherwise be threatening, right, at the worst case. So you did a really good job. If, if you ever attend one of my workshops, I'll show you the advanced techniques of social interaction that can get you through anything, right? And some of those things are really involuntary in the way that people react to them. Okay, so as much as you might think that the challenge of a lot of this kind of work is finding the right skills or logistical, I would say the biggest challenge of this work is the ethical, ethical considerations. When you're interested in everything, potentially, where do you stop, right? And um, we have a, a principle which is we put our participants first, and then the team comes second, and then when it comes to data collection, and then the client comes third, and through that, we best serve the client by protecting our participants, because we, we know that we can get to a much, much more nuanced notion of the truth if we serve our participants, and we put them at the center of this. And there are many ways that it plays out, um, and there's many ways in which it gets communicated to, our, uh, to the people that we're interacting with and interviewing and going in their homes and so on, that they pick up on whether we are corporate assholes or whether we are worth trusting. And so everything that we do is about building that trust and maintaining it, and we have to earn it, and that's inherent in the process that we have. And the challenge of this is to do it worldwide, right? So how do you do this pretty much anywhere in the world? And that's what I set up Studio D to do. Okay, one sec. Thank you for the commercial break. Okay, so um, the second side project is a side project about reminding us why we travel. So you get the idea that I travel a fair bit. And actually, I probably traveled about half of every year for the last 15, 16 years. So I travel a lot, right? And that comes with the costs of maintaining your fitness and maintaining relationships. And sometimes I would wake up, in, certainly in the corporate days when I was, before I was burnt out, was waking up and like, what city am I in? What continent am I in? I mean, you know, like ridiculous levels of idiocy in travel. And that's why I wanted to change the way that I traveled and the way that I worked. So. And I'm particularly interested in borderlands travel. So borderlands travel for me is going to places that are geopolitically a bit tetchy. People don't trust each other, like between borders. There's smuggling is always an interesting one. Um, where there's always a bigger picture, and no matter how smart you think you are, there's always stuff that you do not understand, right? And I really love working in those environments because I feel very out of my depth and it forces me to really be on the top of my game to figure out what is going on. And especially when you have a team and you're responsible for a team as well. Um, and so I do a, a, a lot of um, 
a lot of borderlands travel, as much as possible, really. But for me, a holiday is finding the weirdest border to cross at high altitude at the worst time of the year and traveling there and enjoying the process of being hustled and people trying to get bribes and, you know, they threaten to throw you in jail and all that. I love that stuff, right? <laughs> so, so um, about eight years ago now, I took a trip and it was a trip to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan and a few other stands. And um, I had a really wonderful Arcteryx M30 backpack. And I love Arcteryx. You guys make such amazing equipment, and I had this pack. I'd used it for a few years. But my god, on this trip, that pack was such a pain in the butt. And the reason is, it was so desirable. Every single border crossing, every single checkpoint I went through, it got searched, and I don't mean just, you know, like cursory glance, I mean unpack the entire thing, hands go down all the little things, any stiff point they would be looking for stuff. Um, on that trip, and this hasn't happened on any other trip, on that trip, two different people try to steal it, the bag as well. And it's, it's not that great, you know, it's not like a, you know, it's not made of gold or anything, but it attracted so much undue attention. And so, Eight years ago, I had this kind of seed planted in my mind as to what would be optimal luggage for the kind of travel I do, right? Uh, the kind of stuff that one day we might be in Tokyo and the next day, you know, with clients, and the next day we might be on the Irrawaddy Delta in Myanmar. A couple of months later, it could be even on the same trip. We're in Kabul and we're going through checkpoints and so on. And I started to think about, well, what would be the ideal luggage for that? And um, I commissioned a piece of custom luggage um, from an East Coast maker of ultralight gear. Some of you may know them. Um, and uh, I used it for a year. And there's things that worked very well about it. It's very basic. I'm not, I'm not a luggage designer. Wasn't then. I'm curious as to whether I am now. You're in a much better uh, position to tell me whether I am or not than I, I am, I think. And I used it for a year. And then at the end of the year, I went back and said, I'd like another prototype. And these are the changes I'd like to make. And that second prototype I used for a year. Um, this is it. If you're wondering what Dyneema looks like after eight years of intensive use, this is the second prototype. It's, um, it's my abuse unit. Literally, if you give me a cliff, I'll put something soft in it and kick it off it and continue to do it, right? So um, maybe. Don't let it go too far. You know, it's got my wallet and stuff. <laughs> I know who you are. So, but you know, I mean, this is this is it, right? It's pretty basic. It's like um, that's probably about 38 liters, and I, I, I use this for trips lasting three months, two weeks, you know, whatever it is that that, that the work required. Um, and you know what it's like when you do these side projects and then people look at it and say, oh, can I have one? And so, so after the second year, um, I made 10, or my uh, supplier made 10. I was kind enough to, um, to, to do that. And, um, and I had a beta team of 10 people, a paying beta team. So they bought them, basically at cost, give or take. Um, and they used it for a year, and we had a Google Doc, and everyone put their thoughts in for one year. Everyone asked for tons of features, and I said no to everything, pretty much. You know, which is what good design is about, I guess. For me, it is, anyway. 
And it literally is a minimal sack, and it's designed, unlike this beautiful Arcteryx I had, it's designed to be ignored, right? And so there's actually, it's very hard to know by looking at it, but there's a bunch of features in it that actually, you look at it, and it gets ignored, and people move on to the next thing. And that's what it's designed for, and it works extremely well. And I've traveled eight years, it's never been checked in once. And I sometimes carry like uh, 20 kilos, like about 45 pounds in there. And even at check-in, because it fits under an economy seat um, or in a business class footwell. So even if they say, you can't put this in the overhead bins, you just, that's ah, all right, it'll go under my seat. It's got my camera equipment in or whatever, right? So, so um, I had this, and um, there were 10 beta testers. And you know, there's a question of, well, you know, where do we go with this? And so after a year, I decided that instead of, and we'd started making other accessories as well for use in, inside the studio and the kind of travel that we do. So after a year, I decided that, um, okay, uh, let's create a brand. So um, uh, in, in figuring out what I wanted it to be, I mean, you guys are totally the experts on fabrics and yield and MOQs and weft and waterproofing properties and all this kind of stuff. Right? That's kind of strange vocabulary to me. Um, I'm interested in things like the psychology of travel. Right? So when you pack, how do you decide how much to take? Why do people always overpack? What does it mean to overpack? So for, for me, a wheel, wheeled luggage is a loan shark. It lends you some space, and then you spend the rest of the journey paying for it. And it's not because you can't wheel it along, but it's because it restricts you to taking journeys that support wheels. And life is much more about surfaces that support wheels, right? And journeys are much more about surfaces that support wheels. Did you find my wallet okay? You can, yes. The, uh, the Porsche's outside. <laughs> Excellent. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's the pink one with the yellow dots. So, you know, it's, it's a, I hope it's an unpretentious piece of luggage, right? It's just, it's got three pockets inside. It does the thing. It, we used to have an internal compression system. This one does. We didn't want to have lots of straps on the outside, things that say, look at me, right? So there's a lot of stuff on the inside. It's pretty subtle, so... Um, so yeah, the psychology of packing, and we wanted to create things that force you to think about the journey that you're about to take, because I believe that will then mean that you'll take a different kind of journey. And the people, that when I take people in the field, you know, I ban any luggage with wheels on our team. If you can't carry your own weight, um, then you should think differently about what, what kind of travel you want to do, right? And you can always ask your colleagues to carry stuff, but between us, um, you shouldn't have any wheels. So um, we decided to start selling to the public, and we wanted to create something that was adaptable to the journey. Um, and I wanted to create something that was also true to what the studio was, which is the minimum amount of infrastructure to get interesting stuff done, um, and came up with SDR Traveler. Um, and even the name itself is pretty anonymous, right? So, and that's deliberate. Right? You either know about it or you don't, and I guess you guys know about it now. So. Um, and we started selling some of the things that we'd used internally in different forms. So you get the sense that I work in a lot of places where there's not necessarily many ATMs. And um, you don't necessarily, 
you know, you can't necessarily send them an invoice or um, uh, uh, pay them with a credit card. Or if you did pay them with a credit card, there's a high risk of fraud and so on. So we often carry our own cash and you have to pay a team. You know, it might be working for a few months and we often pay them in cash. And, you know, so we do a lot of exploration around cash and how people carry cash and how to keep it discreet. Um, and so we, we actually have a product called the 10K pouch, which is designed for carrying $10,000 in used or strapped notes. Um, of course, there's a series, and there's the 100K, there's the 400K, um, and then we have the 1M Hawley, and the 1M Hawley is designed for the discreet, comfortable carry of volume cash, $1 million in used or strapped notes. And of course, we're passionate about what we do, so, um, you know, this product, um, it meets the six main needs of volume, of volume cash carry. So, avoiding the risk of discovery, the risk of damage, container robustness, carryability, particularly with a, use, uh, with a gloved hand, um, chain of custody, so we actually sell an accounting kit with it. Um, that supports chain of custody of, of things. And Glide. Anyone know what Glide is? Glide is when you have a full Hawley that is 10 kilo, or is about 22 pounds. And if you have a marble floor, Glide is the extent to which the <laughs> will, glide, will glide along the floor before coming to a halt. We all have our own metrics, and these are the metrics that are important to us. So um, we actually work in a lot of places where we want to be discreet, right? So we don't want people to track us, and we want to kind of stay under the radar. We, we like to blend in and not, not, not be noticed. And so we actually have a, a product um, that we, we use a ITAR-registered um, contractor for, for making a Faraday liner that sits inside the Hawley, and it's called the 1M Hawley Heist. And it allows you to put an electronic device, or if there's a tracking device in your cache that you're carrying, um, uh, it will uh, block the signals of the thing that you're carrying. So, so if you need to collect a lot of cash and move from A to B, it helps you avoid detection. So this is one of the products that we have. And that's actually, that was shot in Somalia. We, we, um, you know, the studio is the main business, right, of what we do, and that's, that's what we do day to day. And so we end up having these products, and when we want to shoot the products, it's not like we're at home and we're in the studio, we're typically in the field, it's like, oh, okay, we've got to wait for this person to turn up, why don't we do a photo shoot? And so we'll end up, you know, on a road between two cities in Somalia, like, um, do a quick shoot with, this is Pascal, one of my colleagues from Switzerland. So every product and every brand that you put out there um, attracts an audience, and you know our first audience and our first customers are ourselves, um, unashamedly. And there's a real question mark as to you know is there a market for this? And actually, there is a market for this, and it's really interesting to see a community form around this. And of course, there's people that aspire to the lifestyle, and I totally get that, and I'm not ashamed to serve that customer base. But you'd be surprised at the customers that buy our stuff, right? I mean, there's the people that you would imagine would buy it, and then there's, there's the other people, right? I mean, there's from all walks of life. Um, and the places that we ship this stuff, 
and they buy them in volume sometimes as well. Um, so, so why we travel? Uh, um, so, um, I had a um, well, my my wife and I had a baby when like uh, seven years ago. So, a daughter, Aya, and I'm still traveling very heavily. And obviously, when you travel and you have a child, you have a different relationship to travel. And um, uh, we're not necessarily conventional when it comes to gifts. And what I would do, partly because I didn't have much space and partly because that's how I kind of see the world is, I would bring a pebble back from my journey um, for my daughter. And that would be my gift from the, the journeys I would take. And then when she was about three, I've got these pictures of her somewhere, um, strap, on the strap on the glasses and we'd go into the, the garage and we'd drill, you know, with a diamond, uh, diamond tip drill, drill this, this, these pebbles from these exotic places, and then we'd make them into zip pulls, and we'd just put them on kind of her, her sweater, and I would put one on, one on the bag that I'm using. And, um, and then when it came to start up SDR Traveler um, for our primary product, which is the D3 Duffel, which is the updated version of the one that's going around, um, every one of those has stones from the Pamirs. It's actually not far from here, on the border between Afghanistan and, and Tajikistan. So, you know, I guess at that point we weren't really thinking about scale, right? And scaling the brand and, um, uh, and supply chain, let's just say it's a little tetchy sometimes to get, to get hold of these stones. But the one that you have going around, those two zip pulls, they're made of stone. And I, I love, you know, that's literally, it's about a pound's worth of weight for a piece of luggage, right? And, and you know what that means. Um, and I love that it's an ultralight product that has stone on it. But every single time I use that zip, I think of why I'm on the journey, what I'm missing, what I haven't got to return to, the people that are important to me. And it's a, just a daily reminder of making the most of the journey that I'm on. So, and even if you ignore all of that, and we never talk about any of that stuff on publicity, and this is actually the first time I've talked about it in public, is stones are just a beautifully, beautiful thing to touch every day, and they evolve as they pick up the, 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 um, the residue of human hands, and they shape. Um, and so you shape the product itself. Okay, why we travel? So third side project is one that I hope will empower. So um, I've been doing all these projects, and I have a lot of, I guess, domain knowledge that is maybe unique. Some of it riffs on other people, and a lot of it we make up as we go along. And so we've, we've been forced to figure out the answers to a lot of questions about how to operate. Um, and um, so many of the client projects that we do, are clients are at this small point here, where it comes together. And they're trying to figure out what the future looks like, right? And they're trying to understand what the world out there is. And these could be weeks, these could be quarters. If you're in telecom infrastructure or aeroplanes, each one of those could be three years, right? It really depends on the client. And this is their assumptions about what is probable. These are things that are less probable, um, but maybe they want to grow into those things. They see a market opportunity. If it's less probable, there's more risk, and maybe they could be perfectly positioned to offer new products and services in that space. Um, so, you know, th these are the kinds of things that 
in trying to answer these questions for our clients, we ended up with so many different frameworks for thinking about the world and so many different processes for pretty much parachuting into any environment, building a team, pulling it together and figuring out what's going on, right? And I guess we've got pretty diverse experiences as well. And so I've done a book project, the one that you mentioned um, a while ago, and whilst it was very educational, and I learned a lot, and I'm very grateful for the team, it was also with a big publisher. You know, you kind of deliver a manuscript, and a year later, it's on the market, and you don't really have any engagement with your customers. And I've published a few e-books along the way, and what I love about an e-book is literally somebody, when somebody buys one, I get a little ping that says, I'm a human being, and I've just committed this amount of money to spending time with your idea. I'm much more interested in one person that does that than 100,000 people that, or 10,000 people that buy another book that I know nothing about. So I realized that's very important to me. So I decided to write a book. I've actually spent the last three years working every day. I often get up at four or five in the morning. I'm often jet-lagged, like before the house wakes or wherever we are in the world, and work between one, one and eight hours a day on it. Right? As a side project, it's been pretty time-consuming. Um, even though I'd published a book before, I didn't feel I was a writer. I have a really tortured experience of writing, and um, so I wanted to learn how to become a writer, and so I committed myself to trying to do that consistently every day, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. But after three years, um, uh, after, sorry, after two years, I brought on an illustrator, a, a gentleman by the name of Lee John Phillips, He's a really talented guy out of Wales, um, who illustrated it. And he spent a year on the project. Um, and you know, it's got a lot of content in it. Um, you know, everything from how to frame, you know, like when I invite a team onto a project, the emotional roller coaster that they go through when they think they're about to travel somewhere where maybe there's a higher risk they may not come back from, right? Um, and that mental process of figuring out and coming to terms with those things. Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff is in there. Um, if you want to know when the appropriate time to give fruit as a gift or a live chicken, you know, I've got you covered. Right? I mean, it, it's got a lot of stuff in there. So every field has its own vocabulary, a kind of language, and really it's a reflection of what's important, right? Um, and um, I'm intrigued with this community, what I can pick up and what I can learn from the vocabulary that you use. I certainly have a lot to learn. I want to give you a couple of examples of words um, and phrases and ideas that are important to me when I'm and, and when we're doing this work. So this one is chronetics, and it's basically the study of how human beings perceive time. And for me, this is important because um, I'm typically working at American corporate pace, and then I travel to places where they laugh in the face of American corporate pace and take things at their own pace. And if you're not able to adjust, then you'll come across as an idiot or culturally incredibly insensitive. The cost of not adjusting can be failure of a project. Um, and so constantly, we have this understanding of what time is is actually a cultural notion, and it's different all around the world. So that's why that's important to us. Let me give you another one. Clean and dirty spaces. Every single home that you go into, whether it's a McMansion or a mud hut, literally, will have 
spaces within that home that are defined as clean and dirty. It's a human thing. That's how we define things. Deviant use cases. We design things for one thing, and they're used for this other thing, sometimes with nefarious intent. They can be a lot of fun, figuring out what the deviant use cases of things are. Um, and if you ever wondered why a chase card has been so popular. Deglossia. It's the language that we use and the changes to the, the, to the language that we use when we interact with different people in slightly different contexts. And so we're constantly changing the language that we use depending on context. We do it multiple, many, many times over the course of the day. Um, you know, there's the professional you, there's the jokey you, there's the father, there's the son, there's the priest, there's the whatever it is, right? And we are all of those things on any, on any day, and it's really interesting trying to decode what people are and why, right? Which one are they presenting to you? Um, and sometimes we have to break those things down, and sometimes we recognize what they are as well. Discomfort cues. Again, if you ever attend a workshop of mine, I would hope to make you very dis un uncomfortable, um, and there's good reason for that. And discomfort cues are those fidgety little things that people do when it's time to move on, right? It's time for you to get out of the social interaction. So I'm very happy that there's not been mass discomfort cues in this audience as yet, but there's plenty of time to go. By the way, my clock isn't working. Could you tell me how much time I have left? 10 minutes, okay. Um, so uh, I wrote a book, and actually this is the very first copy here. going to go on sale next month, and I'm kind of proud about it. And apologies for putting a product up on stage, but it's a side project. You kind of know where it came from, and I'm super interested to see what people think of it. Um, and even if you don't read it, you can whack people over the head with it and <laughs> knock some sense into it. Okay. So lastly, I'm going to close with um, a side project that's a little more experimental than most. And you can tell I kind of love experimenting with stuff. Um, and I love experiments that hold a mirror up to ourselves. So I'm going to show you a short movie. It's very dark, deliberately dark. You'll understand why in a moment. Okay. Oh, my goodness, it really is dark. So this is a movie that shows 14 people. It's shot at night. There's no illumination. It, it's in Shanghai. Um, there is a pile of things on the side, and I asked for 14 volunteers to go on the roof. And I just said, there is a task. It takes 20 minutes. And I didn't give them any other instructions. My assistant, Lily, was in a, a neighboring apartment. She broke into an apartment and, and videoed this thing from above. So we have this video. I, if you're interested, you can see it another time. And each of these things on the side is a mat. That is, it's a red mat that you often find outside Chinese restaurants. And you can go to into any community anywhere in China and you will find someone selling red mats. It's just inherent in the culture. And there were a hundred red mats on the side. Each of them was either plain or it had a pattern on it. And this experiment was the assembly task in uh, an experiment that I run um, I wanted to run it, I was living in Shanghai at the time, and I wanted to better understand the culture and the internet culture. And with my assistant, Lily, um, from Shanghai, 
um, we decided that we wanted to make a recognizable thing, a thing that everyone would understand. We wanted to use ubiquitous services from communities that we could find anywhere in China, including internet services. We wanted to source the raw materials for production. We wanted to make the supply chain as, as weird as possible. So we decided to source it from 100 different communities around China, um, not from one place. We didn't want anyone to know what was going on except for the task that they were asked to do. And there was, there's about 20 tasks. And so those 14 people have never met anyone else in the rest of the supply chain. They, all they know is that they, they were up on a rooftop and there's a thing that they could do. And let me give you a couple of examples of the way that this experiment was set up. So early on, there's, um, we decided to make a giant flag made up, made up of 100 red mats. So some of them would be just red, and some of them would, be, would require customization. And so the flag design task, we go on an online forum, and we ask someone to give us a vector graphic of a Chinese flag. It's straightforward, and we pay them, right? Very straightforward task. But then what we would do for the flag quality verification task is we would go onto another online forum, find five complete strangers, and say, we will pay, pay you to try and find an error in that flag design. And if anyone was able to find an error, we would go back and redo the first task. And if enough people said that they couldn't find an error, then we would be happy and go on. And so we did loads of tasks, and then we did loads of error checking um, with, with people that didn't know each other for this. And um, exa examples of tasks are, you know, Finding like where when you when you say we want to source this from across China, what does that even mean? What does what we you know we have to explore notions of what China is, and we didn't decide it. We let the crowd and we let people we'd never met before define it for us. People who were local, um, we had to source customization a lot of it, and we had to give them very precise instructions, and so we needed to set all of that up as well. So. The experiment that interests me most, apart from the fact you can get a whole bunch of strangers to make something that is recognizable and maybe desirable, or maybe not, um, is the trust experiment. We wanted to pay people, but we didn't want anyone to know where the money came from, because we tried to make the whole thing anonymous. So um, it's the equivalent of saying, I don't know who you are. Could you give that to Sam later? All right, okay. Um, and she doesn't know what my intention is. I don't know whether she's gonna keep it. I don't know who you are. You might be straight off the street and you're gonna go off and spend your 20 bucks, right? Um, so we went on online forums and we offered people, and we tried to figure out how to incentivize the money going to where we wanted it to go to. Um, and so we offered these complete strangers the equivalent of $7, and we said, we'd like you to pass this $7 on to other strangers that you've never met before. Right? It's a pretty weird question. And if you do it, we will pay you 35 cents. This is all in Chinese R&B. Okay. So what percentage of the money do you think arrived? Like, there's no way to trace them. It was all on anonymized online forums. 60% of the money arrived. Right? And so if you think about designing that thing at the end. How can you design a system that has error checking and verification and redundancy built into it? And what does it, requ what does it require to build in this redundancy on a mass scale? And again, these are not people we've hired 
for the job. These are just people we've engaged for these very micro tasks. And what interests me is the rationale that people had, because they went back to the original forums where we posted, and these forums should still be up, where we posted for the volunteers. What interests me is the rationale that they had for their behavior. And some people thought it was doing the right thing. They didn't know it was from a foreigner. It's all written in, in uh, Chinese. Um, so there wasn't necessarily national, you know, we took national pride out of it. But um, people rationalized that, I think this is for a TV show, <laughs> right? We're, we're being watched, so I'm gonna do the right thing. Um, but the one I like the most is the person that said, I wanna keep the money, but if I do this task, maybe next time they'll give me more money and I'll be able to take more money. And what I love about that is you can have people that are, you can engage people that are proactively against your best interests, and you can have them work in your interest, right? And if you think about this on a mass scale with thousands of people, what can you achieve? And, you know, this experiment, it could be really stupid. I, I accept that. It could be illegal. I'm not sure. It involves a flag, and people walk on it. Um, I think also it's maybe there's touches of this that are some indicator of future supply chain management. When, when you think about how we design products and how we bring them together and the roles at each step, and particularly as more of that, those steps can be automated in particular ways, right? So, so I thought I would close with a little structure trust experiment. Okay, it's going to take three minutes. And just to put it in context, my interest, I'm interested in whether this is a trustworthy community, right? It is interesting. But really, I want you to behave selfishly. And the purpose of this experiment is for you to think about why you make the decision you make. All right? And that's an internal thing. It's for you to reflect upon. And so the experiment is this. Um, oh yeah, and so what are the norms that guide that behavior? Like, why are you making those decisions? So the experiment is this. So earlier today, I gave you 10 envelopes, okay? Um, in those 10 envelopes, oh, they've been taped under randomly assigned seats. So you may or may not have one underneath you or in the one next to you. Okay, there's only 10. And in those 10 envelopes, it's not split evenly, but there's $1,000, okay? And there's 10, oh, okay, if you've got an envelope, you can hold it up. Okay, there's a few hands gone up, right? Okay. So I'm not saying every envelope has money in it, but between you, there is $1,000, okay? Now here's the thing, is there's two rules to this experiment. The first rule is if you find an envelope, you need to give it to someone that you've never met before within 30 minutes. Rule number one, you need to give it to someone you've never met before within 30 minutes. And you might tell them why you gave it to them, and that would be interesting. The second rule is if you are handed an envelope after 5 p.m. today, 
I'd like you to hand it to either Michelle or Sam. And if you guys could stand up, our, our kind organizers. So if you get an envelope by 5 p.m. today, um, I'd like you to hand it to these guys afterwards. There are two rules. Some of you may consider yourself social rebels. That's fine. I just really want you to think about what are the norms that guide your behavior? And why are you, what, the decision that you make of what to do with those envelopes. I wonder if anyone took one and then just quickly hid it so no one saw it, right? <laughs> so there's plenty of scope for this to go horribly right or horribly wrong. And that's my loss or my win, but I think we would all, all win from learning what happens with it, right? Okay, so uh, two rules. If you find an envelope, you need to hand it on within 30 minutes to someone you don't know. And after 5, 5 p.m., please make sure that they go to Michelle and Sam. What you do with them, how you treat them, is totally up to you. It's none of my business. So, and I'm interested to see how it works out. Okay, thank you. Enjoy Structure. Um, does anyone have any questions for Jan? Do I lie when I travel? Uh, I am very selective with the truth. <laughs> and uh, there, there is actually there's a real art form to giving a plausible identity, but without giving the purpose of why you're traveling. The, the easiest thing to say is I'm doing market research. Some of those places, there's no market, so it's a bit weird, but... <laughs> but generally, oh yeah, market research. Basically, you want to be boring enough to be ignored, and that's the guide between, about telling people what you do. Um, often when we engage participants, we're very careful about not leading them, so we don't lead them to a response. We're trying to get to a notion of the truth, so it helps with, that they think we're anonymous. Sometimes in that process, we want to be respectful, but sometimes in that process we end up hiring them onto the team, and if we do that, then we reveal much more about what we do. Um, we run single blind studies, so people don't know who we are. Double blind studies, where the team doesn't know who they're working for. I've done triple blind studies, where the client doesn't even know that we're working for them. I mean, yeah, I know, it gets a bit crazy. So. Yes, ma'am. It's on now. So since the last time we met, our country is seemingly a different place. And in, in our own country, it may be very foreign to us now. Are you researching inside the US and at the borders? Um, I am. And I actually have a, a project that I'm supposed to finish by next Tuesday, uh, which has been going on for a few weeks. That is specifically around US things. Not necessarily specifically around borders. Thank you. Uh, enjoy the event. <laughs>